another time, there was an island. Hello, my lovers. Welcome back to the Athen Podcast. This episode, I'll continue reading from the book I began last week. Last week? Last month. Last time. But first, an apology. I felt oddly sluggish last time we spoke. Something I had put down to the confusion I had been feeling in the weeks preceding the recording. It has passed, I am pleased to say. And those kind souls worried about me stuck here. Thank you, by the way, for getting in touch on the Athen Trust Instagram. I promise I am fine. It is true I have still not found my way outside. True also that whilst I did find the hallway I am sure once contained the front door, it contains it no longer. But these facts should not worry anyone. I am being well looked after. And the dog has returned from wherever she goes when I am... asleep. Asleep. Yes, regardless, she is here beside me, and sleeping soundly. So, back to the book. I think I'm afraid, though, that this will have to split over a couple of episodes. The next few chapters, the same lines. The stories get longer a little as the book goes on. I hope you don't mind. So, onwards. Chapter 2 of Our Journey into the Stories of Athen. As I mentioned, the book seems to concern itself simultaneously with explaining the island's past through stories, whilst offering a frankly disconcertingly accurate account of the arrival and exploration of Athen to the lone visitor. This has not altered by the second chapter, surprisingly. It is called The Gorse Giant. The sunrise is slow on Athen and the dawn light churns the cream paint to butter on the walls of the house on the hill. The sunlight bounds down the slope towards the sea, with the rays illuminating the frosted gorse in burnished, gilt-edged daggers of thorn, the yellow flowers twinkling in a constellation of heathland. It's the sun that wakes you, splashing your face, with warmth as you lie in a cold bed in the guest room under the eastern eaves of the house. Athen Hall runs cold, even in the summer, so at this time of year, in the morning when the embers are low, you wake with a cloud of your breath in the air. No underfloor heating here. Single glazed windows spidered with the frost crack of ice on the glass. It's mornings like this that remind you of your place in the world. With the sedate thunder of waves on the beaches to the west, the surf coming in heavy, as though the cold has made even the ocean sluggish and resentful of waking. There's always noise in this house. Sea, slate, gulls, and the distant comforting sound of housework though, even if pressed, you probably couldn't describe any of the staff here, could you? No matter. Look, by the window. Somebody has fetched your bags from the beach. Dress, and we'll go down to breakfast. The range in the kitchen is on, and the smell of bacon and hogs pudding pulls with cartoon simplicity to you from two floors below. 
You have the highest room in the house, bar the attics. Let me talk you down. Wrap up warm before you risk the descent. Past abandoned rooms with shuttered windows and cloth-draped furnishings. Past the library, its door always open. The book spines tingling with cold morning air and the anticipation of post-breakfast readings with coffee by the fire. The library takes up almost the whole third floor. One large room, dark wood shelves and wheeled staircase, thick-legged tables groaning under piles of books and unfinished archaeological research. To the back, a door stands ajar. Behind it is the study, map-lined walls and locked drawers. The books here are on many things, but folklore takes up more than its fair share. Hagiographies, the lives of forgotten saints and their legends, line the north walls. The south is natural history, geology, all strata and pebble polish. Other shelves hold stories, histories, biographies of the long line of lords and ladies who have lorded it over this pile of bricks on a pile of rock. There are other books, too, out of sight and chained to their shelves. Shall we? One floor down, close to the kitchen, still pumping out smell and warmth and reassuring noises. You'd rather not be alone in this house, though I'm here with you. Each door here is closed, but bedrooms lie behind them. The detritus of lives left behind. On bedside tables, books lie, page down, spine bent, keeping the place for readers just departed. Come on then, one floor down. It's a comfortable house, once it warms up, and the breakfast room looks out onto badly kept lawns defrosting in the morning sun. It's a tumble-down day developing. The wind picks up and hollows at the windows, keeping everyone inside. It might blow itself out, but you can never be sure. Days like these aren't made for fairy tales, they're made for ghosts, for the hollowed-out and wind-winnowed histories of the dead. People often think that horror is for the dark, for the gloomy and the downcast. No, ghosts move across the sun-softened ice of Heathland in the winter, hiding in the long shadows cast by a part-time sun. And Athen has no shortage of spirits. The house nor the island. Fishing ports have always had more than their fair share of misery. That's why most coast towns have so many spires. Athen only has the one chapel, but the graveyard creaks under the weight of salt-soaked coffinwood and bones. Have you eaten enough? Wiped the fat from your chin and mopped up the butter-beaten egg yolk with the bread, risen just like you this morning, so you'd be fed. Come then, with me. The day dawns wide and beckons us down its open throat to all the heady victuals inside it. We won't explore the gardens today, though I know you've seen them, poking scruffy-headed from behind the house. Not to the lighthouse, either. Though, even in the morning light, it still strokes your cheek with its beaming. No. Today we're going more woods. It's a miracle they built a house here like they did. There's no quarry on the island, so all the stone was brought from the mainland. Granite quarried at Lamorna. Slate at Delibol. 
dragged over land by horses heavy with mud in axle-breaking surrender. Did you know, while we're on it, some of those old horses came over with the rocks to unload at this end and to drag the stone up winding village and Holloway over the moor, past the peering piskies, unsure of how to baffle a horse. Up along the coast path, salt sprayed oblivion to one side and gorse death to the other, until they finally unloaded here on this hill. And, when that job was done, and the men had tethered them up to go home, back down the yesterday to the boats, all of the horses refused. Dug iron deep into the hillside and wouldn't budge. Sweat-shined flanks set hard against the backtrack. And soon the men gave up and went away. But the horses stayed. And with no stabling to speak of, went their own way. You might still see a few descendants of those that stayed, grazing with the rabbits, chasing hares, running up the burn-downs. Look at you, all ashen-faced. We're nearly out now, out to stand on wind-cut grass and hillside. Great chunks of granite strewn about the place, some forgotten giant's forgotten game of marbles, all the remnants of some Neolithic community left because they were too big to move down to the village to form the cornerstone of new builds, or because they sheltered stock from fiercer weather. Now there seems no rhyme or reason to their spacing, barely a hint of what was. Here, on the top, is the highest bit of Athen. The granite collected up in purse strings, toppling about itself in metamorphic stacks. Gao Tor, an old meeting place for fishermen and no goodsmen, sleeping place for giants, now just a sounding board for wind. From here you can see the rest of the island, back across the moor to the house, nestling in the gorse and staring out to the water. To the top of the gorse lighthouse, sea safe and winking. Down the curve of the island to the village, roofs still visible past the trees. Eyes catching on the pool with its own dry island and standing stones, mirror black even in the sunlight. The estuary sweeping back past the broken home of witchcraft. The whole of Prosperity Bay laid out like a sunbeam. And there, at the far end, past the moss-balled oaks, the weather vane on the chapel. You can see the outlying rocks here as well. Admiralty Bluff and the Giant's Teeth. Gibbet Rock and the Gollowillians. Lots of rocks you cannot see too, of course. This island's ringed with parts of giants. Every mass of stone, a giant's finger or arm on top of his head. Each spray of surf that shoots across exposed seaweeded tufts of slate does so over some sleeping Goliath. None left now, though. Not here. Though sometimes, when the haze is right, you'll see their ghosts, towering over you in the moonlight. Come, down the hill. Mind there a billow of lapwing, all black and white and oil-slick tufted heads calling out a danger already been and gone. Curl you too, with their nonsense songs and curved bills, it's a miracle they aren't extinct. But nobody hunts them here. Not anymore. Nor the snipe or puffin, for that matter. Athen is a haven for them all. Walking northwards, away from the tor, past the small herd of shaggy cattle grazing here, the ground keeps quiet until the very edge of the cliff, surprising you with a sudden drop. 
The grass hangs in folds over the edge, tempting you to test the water and step out further than you should, but don't worry, I have your arm. I've brought you here to show you the sea. On the opposite side of the island, Britain stretches itself in the haze, the pig's foot of Cornwall kicking off in the distance. But here, there's nothing but open water. On the clearest of days, you can't see anything but water and the horizon. It's important you see how far we are from land. Boats don't sail close. Too many rocks, too much fog. Ethan is alone in the water, bobbing along with the heads of the seals. If the light is right, you might see shoals of pilchard or jellyfish glimmering in the blue. When the island was as full as it ever was, young boys would stand here and dare each other to jump. There's a single patch with no rocks that's deep enough when the tide is high. Easy to misjudge, though. And many did. Tempted. You might see the wrecks, too. Hundreds of years of misadventure lost beneath the waves. There's a big one there, next to the giant's teeth. Before we go down, maybe I will tell you a story about a little girl and a giant, about all the giants, living and dead. Can you feel the ground move? There's more than you listening to this one. Sit there, on the rock. I'll begin. It was Creda's third visit. She'd walked the gorse-guarded paths her whole life, but she'd only found the cave this winter. She'd been running for an imagined huntsman. She was a princess, or a thief, or both. Images from fairy tales, read to her before bed, flashed in front of her eyes. In a terror so vividly imagined, she was often in danger of forgetting it wasn't real. She had plunged through the spines and yellow flowers before realising where she was going, emerging suddenly at the granite moor. Her heart beat hard in her chest and her face prickled from the cooling flush of the chase. Her eyes, wide open and wet from the wind, took in the cave. She'd seen caves before, but they're always so small, so clearly not for her. This one was different. This one wanted her to walk inside. It was taller than it was wide, a zorn or fissure in the hill. The rocks on the floor could be steps, if you squint. The wind was up, and she could hear it on the other side of the gorse wall behind her, trying to squeeze through the dense undergrowth. Gusts caught on the thorns and screamed softly, calling the rest of the wind to follow. She was getting cold, and it was late. She wasn't scared of getting lost or returning in the dark. She knew the hills better than any. Better than the horses, her father said. But she couldn't be certain she wasn't scared of the cave. She'd gone home that night with more thoughts than she'd left with, and her dreams were full of monsters. Creda was eight. Her hair frizzed out from the hood of the blue coat she wore most days, and a thick, home-knitted jumper poked out from the poorly buttoned front. She had no brothers or sisters, and her mother had left when she was small. She lived with her father and grandmother, in a cottage set close to the trees in the village by the harbour. 
Her father and grandmother took in the fishermen's nets and fixed them, running deft hands over broken lattices, weaving back together lobster pots and creels that had suffered from a jailbreak. She played alone most days, the other children clustering by the water, but since her mother had left, she had retreated further into her lifetime love of the moor tops, the rabbit warrens, the land. On her second visit to the cave, she came at dawn. It was difficult to find. She'd given up, in fact, but saw a scrap from her coat, snagged on a fallen gorse branch. It took longer to penetrate the brush this time. There was no bravado to keep her going, and she wanted no more scratches than she had to get. But she was determined. This was her moor. She'd brooked no secrets. The wind blew cold through the twisted serpentine branches and rattled the flowers on their green glitched limbs. Gorse flowers are a vivid yellow. Their coconut scent lingers faintly in the air and mixes with the earth-mulched smell of wet wood and soil. When the gorse is out of bloom, kissing's out of season. That's what her grandmother says with her granddaughter on her knee. Creda would crinkle her nose in disgust and squirm away across the flagstones. Creda loved the gorse. She told her father if she ever married, she'd walk down the aisle with gorse in her hand, never mind the pinpricks. The flowers hung golden in the grey sky above her as she crawled towards the cave. To her left, the ghost of an adder snagged on the thorn, flutters with flickerbook life. Some of the folk in the village tuck these shed skins into the brims of their hats to deflect the evil eye. She has one at home draped across her mirror. It took a long time to reach the cave. She had been worried that this time, in the morning light, it would be just another hollow in the rock, a shelter for sheep. But it wasn't. Dark and lovely and deep in the hillside, the cave mouth loomed, just where she'd left it, flanked with heather that jutted from the rock. Grasses and ferns hung over the entrance, and the purple-black shadows seeped out over the moor. A breeze, hot and damp, ruffled through the overhanging green like a breath, like a sigh. Creda stood up from beneath the gorse and stepped towards the granite. She could feel the pull of the cave again and stepped inside. She had only ventured a few paces when the daylight disappeared. It closed up behind her with a sucking sound and Creda stood motionless in the darkness. Her eyes adjusted slowly to the gloom. She felt for the rough walls of the tunnel, but pulled her hand back. They were wet and smooth. She could hear drips, rain and spring water seeping through the hill above her, through old rock. It was warm in the cave, and her eyes could see a little now if they strained. Small animal bones crunched underfoot, driven to dubious shelter from a storm, and moss and lichen stained the curious smooth walls. She stroked her hand along it. It felt like a pebble on the beach. She gasped as her fingers met indentations. She could feel chisel marks. She wished she had brought some light. Her father's lamp, perhaps. She knew where he kept it and how it lit, though she'd promised not to play with it. This wasn't playing, though. He'd understand, she was sure. Her fingertips lingered on the marks in the rock, leading her deeper into the cave. She shouted, Hello! 
and listened as it echoed around her. The space inside must be big, she thought, as the noise died away. The breeze gusted suddenly, making her falter and slip on the slick floor. She fell and instinctively reached out for a steadying hand. She was grateful when one found her. Then she froze. Holding her steady was a long, oddly proportioned arm. It hung loose and primal from a shoulder that protruded from the gloom, and in the darkness two anthracite eyes glistened. The hand was coarse and hard. Creda pulled her arm back and it let her go, lingering only for a second before receding into the dark. There was a sound like grating rocks and rushing gravel, and in a raspy intake of breath she could hear her name. The hairs on her neck rose, and she could feel then some force in the voice pulling her towards it. She stayed, frozen for a moment, for a terrible moment, and then ran hard for the entrance, for the daylight. She pushed through the gorse, not minding the tears and rips as she ran, her mind as blank as a hare running from a buzzard, a fish from a shark. Nothing on her mind but freedom. She did not stop, did not look back, until she was resting and panting at the top of Gao Tor, sheltered by the granite from the wind. As her breathing slowed, as the breeze cooled her face, she considered what had happened. She was cross now. With that thing, yes, but mainly with herself. She was scared, and she was never scared of anything. She knew this moor, this island, she knew everything on it, and nobody had any right to hide some of it from her. She was angrier than she had ever been. Whatever it was, whoever, it had no right to scare her. She thought about the stories she knew of the island, the little folk, the buckers and spriggans, the spirits in the wood. She had never been bothered by them before, and besides, everybody knew they didn't hurt islanders. Whatever it was had overstepped. She clenched her fists with the indignity only the young can muster, and stamped her foot before turning home. Despite herself, tears formed at the corner of her eyes, and by the time she was home, she was crying again. She burst through the kitchen door and thundered, bawling into the thick-knit arms of her father. He held her tightly, asking what was wrong. But she kept her face pressed tight against the lanolin-scented wool of his jumper, and promised herself that she'd go back that evening. She scowled through dinner. Her grandmother and father had asked what had happened but experience had taught them not to pry too hard. They looked at each other and smiled at Creda's curl-framed face, deep in thought, as she glowered at the table. She sat in front of the fire after dinner. Her grandmother sat knitting in an old drop-arm sofa, worn with use. Her eyes closed as the needles clattered between her fingers. At the table, dinner cleared away. Creda's father worked on fishing nets whistling as he went, twisting the cords beneath his fingers, fixing holes, blowing in the wind. He had tried to teach Creed time and again, but she wasn't interested. She must be the only girl on the island who doesn't love the sea, he thought. She had always preferred the heather. Creed's father watched the back of his daughter's head silhouetted against the flames and smiled. He had abandoned walks along the seashore when she was old enough to express disinterest. 
Instead, he had walked with her through the moors above the village, talked the names of the flowers and the birds. He knew it wouldn't last forever, but he was determined she would be free from the world as long as he could shelter her from it. The sea would take her in the end. There was no escaping it here. Let her live in the uplands while she could. He felt secure knowing she was up there, sure-footed and walking the paths the deer left. He knew that if something had upset her up there, she'd work it out. When she was little, she'd been startled in the night by the cry of a fox. Try as he might, he couldn't persuade her that the unearthly shrieks weren't ghouls or monsters, just a dog fox calling to a vixen. Though she was scared, her little face shone out with a ferocity he remembered from her mother. He had loved it in her, too, crossed to have been made a fool of. He'd found Creda's bed empty the following night. Panicked, he'd raced around each room, calling her name. She wasn't in the house. He'd crashed down to the front room and looked anxiously out at the dark landscape. He'd heard the foxes there. A fox's shriek is an unworldly thing. It echoes and hangs in the atmosphere, banshee-bold and spirit-flensing, even when you know the truth of it. The moon was full and bright. It hung low over the horizon, and in its silver glow, Creda's father saw his daughter. She was lying in the lee of a rowan tree, fast asleep. His heart still beating fast from the search. He'd lifted her softly up and taken her home. Laying her gently in her bed, her eyes had opened and met his. I saw the foxes, Daddy, she'd said, before falling back to sleep. She'd never be scared of them again. Whatever it was this time would be the same. He tucked her in that night with a kiss. The scowl had softened into a smile for a brief moment, and he whispered in her ear, Do what you need to do, Creda, but don't worry me. She shook her head and watched as he left, closing the thick wooden door behind him. The moon was full again, and it shone through the curtain-covered glass. Quietly, she swung her feet out from under the covers and stepped across the room. She pulled on the breeches her grandmother had made her, after repairing too many dresses, tough and leather they'd withstood gorse and hawthorn before. The knees and seat were worn from sliding down banks and crawling under hedgerows. She tucked her nightdress into the waistband and pulled her coat from the back of the door. Her boots waited on the hearth, left to warm and dry by the embers. She pulled them on and walked towards the door. She lingered at the big oak table, stained softly with meals past and pockmarked with knife-scored grooves. Her father's bone-handled knife stood upright in the wood, and her hand reached out to grasp it. She didn't know who was in the cave, after all. She fondled the handle, but creased her brow and let her hand fall. If she were to be brave, it would be on her terms. She pushed open the door and walked into the night, grabbing the lantern as she went. From the two upstairs windows, her father and grandmother watched her go in the moonlight. It took longer to reach the cave at night. She knew where she was going, but she wanted to keep the alarm pool for later. Relying on the moonlight, she had to be careful with each step, and it was hard to tear her eyes from the silvery undergrowth. She wasn't often out this late, and the beauty of it was distracting.
An owl screeched nearby, but Creda loved owls. She'd spent weeks when she was younger staying up late to catch them out, to catch one's eye. She tried to see it now, perched on a gnarled branch, but it was nowhere in sight. Her grandmother had tried to scare her when she was little. She said the witches at St Endor used the moonlight to charm their spells, and on nights like this they'd be out riding on their stems of ragwort. But Creda had never seen a witch, and if she did, if she were pushed, she thought she'd actually quite enjoy meeting one. Besides, she had her necklace of red twine and roan that she'd made in the autumn, and witches couldn't stand either, according to the stories. She was so wrapped up in thought about witches, she almost missed the low-down entry to her gorse path. Her two-time wriggle had cleared some of the danger, but she could still feel the spines clutch and catch at her cloak as she moved through the maze. She could hear the scuttle of hidden creatures waking with a start, fleeing the creeping girl. Tiny feet ran over her boot, and she could feel the heat under her hands where something had made its bed. She muttered apologies under her breath, and was glad when the moon shone unhindered in front of her. She stood and brushed off the mud and sticks that clung to her. The night was warm for the time of year, but standing still the cold crept in. The moonlight caught the quartz in the rock-framed entrance, and it sparkled gently in the night, a reflection of the stars above. She stood and held the lamp in front of her, Walking to the cave's hollow front, she looked into the darkness. Come on, then. Out you come. She couldn't hear anything but the hiss of the lamp and the breeze as it blew through the gorse, so again, loud this time. Come. I know you're in there. I see your eyes sparkling. It was true. In the sombre crack of blackness, two pinpoints of white glimmered in the lamplight. A thick and rasped noise came from below them. Even Creda had spent enough time by the sea to recognise the sound. The sound of the waves as it dragged pebbles back and forth over each other at the foam line. The call of the sea, the sing of the shore. This was the same noise, stones grating against stones in gravel breath. Like music squeezed from the bellows of an old concertina, the words came out breathy and faint. Creda. Yes. Who told you my name? The birds. Between each phrase a breath hard taken. Creda considered this for a moment, but concluded that the idea of birds talking about her was perfectly reasonable, and continued her discussion. What do they tell you? And come out into the light. I can hardly hear you. Quiet followed. Only the wave-breath crunch diminished the silence. What do you think I am, Creda? Are you not scared? Creda scoffed audibly, keen to prove she wasn't. And what had started as a lie, as an act, grew less of one as the voice kept speaking. It was kind, she thought, and tired. Not me. You're probably just some old bucker, lost down the caves. Come out into the light. The laboured breaths increased, and Creda could hear the figure draw closer. Gradually, the hunched shape of a man emerged from the hill. He straightened and just cleared the lintel of the cave. Out of a slim face, the two black eyes glittered from the deep-set sockets. 
Powerful but sloping shoulders supported the man's long, thick arms and sturdy legs showed beneath the tattered fleece skirt. Chains hung from the waistband, passing through old sheep's bones and hollow stones. Upright, he must have been nine foot tall, though after a moment he bent under invisible weight, unable to stand that tall for long. He looked out cautiously from beneath his brow, an arm curled defensively in front of him, though what Creda could have done to him she did not know. She was glad she had left the knife, embarrassed to have considered it even. He seemed scared of her, even without it. A giant, then. Creda regarded the creature in front of her. I thought you were all gone. That's what Grandmother said. And in the stories you're bigger. The giant smiled with the sound of grounding millstones. Not so big anymore, true. Older, though. The girl and the giant faced each other across the light-soaked clearing. Sure you're not scared, little one? The bird said you wouldn't be. They followed you home when you ran, but they said you'd be back. Aye, I'm back. Creda's face settled back into a scowl. What do you want? The giant's face softened, and he gazed up at the sky. I want to tell you a story. Mine and that of my kin, before I pass out of this world. I'm the last, you see. And before I go, I wanted one person to hear our names again, hear our feats. But every time I tried, men ran, screaming from the hollow places I live. But you, little one, the birds found you for me. His stony lips parted in a smile, and for the first time since they met, Creda felt less comfortable. I moved about under the earth beneath you. I listened to you play. I crouched deep beneath your house and touched my hand to the earth above my head so I could feel the heat from your harp. Creda's scowl softened as she looked up at the giant. She thought quietly to herself as she looked into the giant's careworn, coal-crusted eyes. She wasn't scared of him. He was just an old man, and she loved stories. She nodded. The giant smiled again and straightened his back. He swung his arm and slammed a granite fist into his chest, beaming as the boom reverberated back into the tunnel behind him. Thank you, he began. I have such tales inside my head. Walk with me. The giant strode out of the circle of light a little taller than he'd been before. Standing taller, perhaps, Creda thought, though as he stepped, crushing a path through the firs, his head blocking starlight up above. She wasn't sure that was the whole of it. Creda bent to take the lamp. Leave it. The voice echoed from the darkness and Creda shrugged. She liked the moonlight better anyway. And there, I'm afraid, I'll stop. Come back again to hear the rest of this one. Come back again after that to hear the rest after that. If, in the meantime, you'd like to say hello, do come and see me. I'm on Instagram at the Eighth in Trust. I'm back managing it now. Or come and see the rest of my collective at Granite and Glitter. Until next time, goodbye.